Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is uh, Father Frank Lane. We're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today we're going to continue through uh, working on the Gospel according to St. Mark. Today, the 13th chapter, the 24th to the, 30th, to the 32nd verse. It's a very, very, it's, it's a very, very confusing and very, very difficult part of the Gospel. And our Gospel today just kind of picks up at the end of it. And, um, but the background is, is that Jesus now for quite some times when he gets his, um, when, when on this discourse, he's already spent a lot of time talking to his disciples about what we call the parousia or the parousia, um, the second coming and the end of the world. Um, the, the whole thing is a part of apocalyptic literature in a way, which, as we know, is very, very, people have been trying to interpret the uh, apocalyptic writings of St. John um, for millennia now. And uh, while there seems to be a, a growing consensus, um, there's a great deal of disagreement and a great deal of um, conflict in the stories. The, uh, it's, a, it's a kind of a melange of prophetic, prophetic apocalyptic allusions from the Old Testament. He picks from Isaiah, from Ezekiel, Daniel, Joel, Habakkuk, and so forth, and so presents kind of an anthological style which is very characteristic of the uh, of apocalyptic literature. When we have, we also have kind of conflicting messages. Um, at one point, Jesus is talking to them about, you know, the fig tree, and you should be able to read these signs of the times, and then in another place he says, nobody knows, not even the Son, only the Father. And so what, is, what are we making of all this, all this sense of what's going on? I think that it's important for us to understand that um, that Jesus himself is talking about a number of things, and we'll we'll look at both of them, and and uh, and we'll see exactly kind of kind of what's going on in this in this most confusing of uh, revelation. The one thing that we do know to start out with the fundamental principles that we know to start out with is that Jesus um, came not to and died on the cross and rose from the dead, not so that everything goes on as usual, as it has all been before he came. There is a definite beginning to the, to the inbreaking of God into the history of humanity, into the incarnation, and there is a definite conclusion to that. Just as there was a definite conclusion to Jesus' life, and then it was brought up into the resurrection, so that becomes kind of the paradigm of the Christian model of living of the Christian model of reality, of existence, that it breaks into time, it has its lifespan, and then it goes on to something else. And, uh, and what that something else is, we're never really clear. All sorts of people have had uh, their understandings of, of, what, uh, of what heaven is going to be. Um, we have all sorts of visions of the saints of, of what heaven would be like. We have conflicting visions of heaven from the saints. Um, St. Thomas Aquinas, if I'm, not, if I'm correct, says that we cannot influence the lives of the living from heaven. 
um, St. Therese of Lisieux says, I will spend my heaven in doing good upon earth. So we can't come up with this solid picture of what the afterlife is like. The saints have their intuitions, the saints have their insights, and we will just have to be left to find out how it all works out. But Jesus, the gospel says, Jesus said to his disciples, in those days after the time of distress, the sun will be darkened, the moon will lose its brightness, the stars will come falling from the sky, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with gates, great power and glory. Then, too, he will send the angels to gather his chosen from the four winds, from the ends of the earth, to the ends of the heavens. And then he says to him, take the fig tree as a parable. As soon as its twigs grow supple, and when its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. So with you, when you see these things happening, know that he is near at the very gates. I tell you solemnly, there before this generation has passed away, these things will have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But as for the day or the hour, nobody knows it, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, no one but the Father. So here we're left now totally perplexed once again. He says that, you know, no one can know the hour, but he chooses the fig tree basically because almost all of the uh, trees in the Holy Land are, are um, conifers, are uh, evergreens. And so the fig tree is the one who does basically lose its leaves and change and come back to life again in the, in the, in the springtime. And so um, he uses that as an example, as a clear sign of the vegetation of Israel, that a whole new cycle of life has begun. And that's what he's talking about, is a whole new cycle of life. And then we have to go back. Now, here's one of the basic interpretations of, of what, the, what the parousia, what the parousia was for Jesus and the apostles and the early Jews as well. When he says um, that basically things will pass away, the heaven and the earth will not pass away. And, uh, and so what, what begins to transpire then is this is becoming more localized, it's becoming more focused, that what many are interpreting this as, and many say that Jesus is interpreting it this way also, is that the destruction, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and that uh, even there are even writers who, whose writings we come across in the, uh, in the breviary who make specific allusion to the destruction of the temple. And that this is now the beginning, this is the new dawning, this is the new breaking open of the world into, into uh, a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because what they're imaging, what Jesus is ta talking about, they say, is the destruction of the temple, which comes some less than 40 years after his death. And he says it's imminent, and he talks about the destruction of the temple. And, uh, and the idea being that the destruction of the temple is in fact the beginning of the second coming. Because with the destruction of the temple, Judaism is essentially dead in, in the Middle East. The Jews um, flee to all parts of the Mediterranean area and, and elsewhere. Um, they, many will flee up into the Ukraine. And, uh, and you have a whole kind of kingdom up there. 
and and the idea basically is is that the solidity the solidification of the, of Judaism is shattered with the destruction of the temple and the positive side of the shattering of Judaism at the destruction of the temple is now the full blossoming of Christianity it is now with the temple gone then Christianity can no longer be attributed as simply a Jewish sect. That Christianity can no longer be seen kind of as the, uh, as the dependent younger brother of Judaism. That it steps out into the light on its own. And in so doing then, it begins, it begins the great age of renewal, the great age of, of illumination, the great age of faith and freedom. Um, now, we might want to go back into the early Middle East and say, well, you know, after 70 AD, the Christians didn't necessarily fare so well all the time. Um, but they fared freely. They were the religion of, they were becoming the religion of the Middle East, and they were spreading rapidly in the cities of the Mediterranean area. It was an explosion of Christianity into the world. And so for many, this partic- these particular verses, as far as, the, uh, as far as their meaning goes, refers essentially to the apocalyptic moment of the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem and the freeing of Christianity to be its own self, its own being throughout the world. And we know, we know how rapidly... How rapidly that spread and how pervasive Christianity became throughout the whole known world. And then, um, then he, Jesus then goes on. And yet there's a deeper connection. There's a deeper, there's a, a deeper, um, I don't know, a, a deeper connection with all of this. Because there is also with it reference to an end time. There's a reference not to the end time of Judaism, which is the first of the of the of the new beginnings, but the the the, the end time of everything. And Jesus alludes to this too when he says, "The sun will be dark and the moon will lose its brightness. The stars will come falling from the heavens." And I saw coming out of the clouds of heaven one like a son of man. And so here we find then in this. In this, in this series of gospel readings, what we began to find then is that there is a, a greater, a more cataclysmic sense of the end times so that we have kind of the smaller version, which is the destruction of Jerusalem, something which Jesus predicts over and over again in the gospels. And then um, within 40 years of the death of the Lord, we see it starting to take place in the first phase of the end times, which is the ending of the temple era and the liberation of Christianity. But it seems that there's more at stake here. To, to the Jews, certainly, after the time of distress, the sun will be dark and the moon will lose its brightness, the stars will come falling from the heavens and so forth. Certainly, the destruction of their temple is unbelievable. It really is for them the end times. It really is the end of something. And struggle as they might to regroup themselves and to reconstruct themselves as a people settled in the holy city of Jerusalem, those days are simply over. And they don't start again, actually, seriously. 
they don't start again until after the Second World War. And then they come back conflicted um, because many, of course, of the very Orthodox Jews would like to see the temple rebuilt. But to do so would also mean the return of animal sacrifices. And I'm not sure that a people as sophisticated as the Jewish people are in the Western world anyway um, would be very comfortable at all with the idea of the restoration of animal sacrifice in the temple in Jerusalem. So basically, basically there is then an ambiguity in this whole story. And then he goes on and then talks about Christ himself returning. And this is certainly beyond the, the, beyond the veil of, uh, of, of the destruction of Jerusalem and, and the liberation of Christianity and the giving of Christianity kind of the wings to become its own presence in the world and a powerful and pervasive presence at that. So that what happens, we come to understand and to realize, and this I think is a very important thing for Christianity, to, to keep in our minds, an important point of Christianity, to keep in our minds um, the fact that everything that we are and everything that we have comes to an end. That there is a finality to this life we live and there is a finality to the things we accomplish. There is a finality to the things that we acquire. That all of these things are not just forever, they live in a temporary time and space, one in which the Lord will come again, will call us accountable for all we have done, and will then prepare us for the resurrection and the coming and the, and the entering into the kingdom of heaven. When that time is, and certainly this has been a theme for Christianity, my gosh, from the very beginning, obviously, there was the whole eschatological movement back, I think, in the 19th century with Albert Schweitzer and, and some of the others, um, where you know, they, they, tried to, they tried to believe, they tried to communicate that the Gospels say that, um, that the Gospels say that um, um, Jesus himself thought that he was going to be around for the end of the world. He becomes himself then for them an apocalyptic character, an apocalyptic time and age. They searched all sorts of things for ways to prove this and for ways to try and figure out what no one knows but the Father. And in every case, of course, they, they, were, they were unsuccessful. Um, and eventually their theories became kind of passe and, and moved out of the area. One of the things that they did do in this era of trying to figure out what this was all about was they began this strange quest for the historical Jesus, that uh, they became troubled, that they didn't want, that they were, that Jesus did not seem to emerge as a historical character in, in contemporary um, secular literature. He's mentioned certainly in uh, in um, Josephus, and and he's mentioned also interestingly enough in Tacitus. Um, but his name is not spread all over the ancient l literature of the ancient world, and so they were saying, well, then what did he do? Who was he? Was he really God? What was he? And so they began the quest for the historical Jesus. And, of course, it's an absurd quest because the historical Jesus is a non-archaeological phenomenon. And if you're going to look for the existence of a person in the past, 
You basically need their either contemporary affirmation of their existence, or or you have uh, or or you, or you have uh, kind of the product of uh, a myth. And so this is what thing you can look around on the internet and YouTube on the internet. There's all sorts of lectures. You know, why did we have to invent Jesus? You know, was Jesus really God? All this kind of stuff. Well, all that's kind of a hangover from the rationalism of the 18th and 19th centuries. I think that uh, Monsignor George Waltz from St. Charles College probably said it best when uh, when he said that uh, as they went about trying to find the historical Jesus, um, the German rationalists eventually ended up with a pious Protestant preacher in a German provincial town. You can't go back and reinvigorate the past. You will only reinvigorate a new kind of spirit of interpretation into the present, because that's where we live, and that's who we are, and that's how we function. The, the Jesus of history is, of course, also the Jesus of faith because he is not only the, the, the incarnate Jesus of the first century, but he is also the risen Jesus who lives with us forever. And so if you, seek, if, you find, if you attempt to seek the Lord, seek him where he is, and where he is, of course, now is everywhere. And it's there that we seek him and find him in the manifestations of his goodness and the manifestations of his power. So here we here we are then at at the end at the end of this of this um, discourse on the second coming and i think for ourselves basically what it means is that we are on a journey where we're on a a, a mystical journey actually from the creation of the world to the end of the world and even even to the the cosmologists today are acknowledging the fact that that the cosmos itself is terminal it has a, it has a termination date on it not the one that anybody knows or not one that anyone can figure out but that we are all on this kind of journey into the end of time and that no matter how much you believe or matter how uh, secular you are or how anti-christian you are you know it's going to end and um and so we find this in our own lives. We find ourselves unfolding as children and the vitality of youth and the, and the, and the, the settledness and the contentment of, uh, of our middle ages and the ravages of old age, actually, too, with also its accompanying joys and then the end. And then everything that was disintegrates and disappears and passes away. And the presumption is that this whole cosmic order of rebirth, generation, rebirth, and death, and so forth, is, is part of the, the DNA, we might say, of the human person. It's part of our consciousness. It's part of, it, it, it's part of, of who we are. Anyone who thinks that they can live forever, you know, you hear these crazy stories about people being frozen a certain way, and then they'll come in. I don't know I'd want to do that, but apparently some people do. It's uh, it's an expensive business. But uh, whatever the reason is and whatever the purpose is, people are afraid of the unknown. And what Jesus is telling them, in a way, in a way this kind of frightening text turns out to be a reassurance. 
Jesus reassuring the people that even in the end, all will be well. And that that's something that we have to rely on and something that we have to trust on. Because if the Lord is the creator of heaven and earth, if the Lord is the master of time and of history, if the Lord is the one who has come and made us for his own, then the Lord also stands there for us at the end of time, our own particular time and, and the time of the cosmos itself. I think that as this, this day, as we, as we listen to the unfolding of the mysterious story of the existence of the world, that we ourselves can be consoled by that and that we ourselves can take some kind of consolation in that, that we too are part of the whole. None of us stands alone in the universe. We partake in its birth, we partake in its growth and its aging, we partake in its death, and we will partake in whatever Jesus offers when he comes on the last day. We are partakers of the whole rhythm of life, the rhythm of the universe, and the rhythm of how God works with us in order to bring us into an awareness and into a consciousness of the wonder of his workings and the beauty of his ways. It also, as well as helping us know that we are a part of that, it should also help us know very much that the, of the care that has gone into all of this, of the goodness that has gone into all of this, of kind of the wonder of all that goes into this, in order that we might come to realize ourselves what wondrous beings the Lord has created. And as we look around and get to know the people around us and come to understand people around us, what a, what a, what a wonderful adventure this is for us, the wonderful adventure of life. We see every dimensionality of reality. We see the sad and the happy. We see the, the painful and the, and the glorious. We see all of those kinds of things. And as we watch our Lord Jesus, he goes through these same cycles himself and eventually from the cross proclaims to us that there is salvation and that salvation comes then from the living God. The gospel, then, is one in more ways of consolation than of fear. It is a place where we can take confidence that all things are in the hands of the Father, all things are in the hands of God, and that while we do not know, neither do the angels nor the Son, no one but the Father. It is, in fact, the Father's world. He created it through the Son, and he has shared his Son with that world. He shared his flesh with us. He shared his wisdom with us. He shared his love for with us. He shared his adventure with us. He shares his pain with us. But he shares his triumph and his joy with us as well. Today, in, as we walk this passageway with the Lord, and each time we go to the Gospel, you know, we're, we're walking in a passageway with the Lord. But it's really kind of interesting. It shows us that there is a real harmony between all the components of the created order. Um, you know, we become historical because we think that because, and well, in fact, we have ever since the Enlightenment, we have been 
abused creation and caused it great damage. And if we can fix some of that damage, we should, because it's God's being. But with the enlightenment, we lost the sense of creation as being a living being, a living creature. And so we exploited it, and we abused it, and and we... uh, we, we used it carelessly and thoughtlessly. And so we've damaged air, water, rivers, forests, and so forth. But we have the know-how and the awareness now to go back and to put all this back together again, to undo a lot of the damage we've done. We've got the technology to do it. We've got the know-how to do it. Um, and without panicking and turning to the worship of false nature gods, uh, you know, certainly we can we can return the generosity and the abundance of the planet to ourselves, and uh, and show some appreciation for the handiwork of God. But we ourselves are on a journey. We're on a journey from birth to death to resurrection to eternal life. And if we take this gospel today, and we kind of use this gospel as kind of a paradigm of life a paradigm of our own life, I think we can come to appreciate ourselves and our place in the world a great deal more. And we can come then also to be more settled and more peaceful and more more confident as the world unfolds in its own mysterious and unknowable ways that we're simply part of a huge reality and that we are participating then in the handiwork of the Lord and we are fulfilling in that handiwork of the Lord whatever he has given us to do. Let us pray to the Lord to make us more aware and cognizant of the fact that all things will come to an end, and in the end there is God alone. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. Veni Sancti.